you're not alone. Every entrepreneur feels really lonely in their journey. I never imagined myself reaching this far. Our vision is to change 1 million lives, give them clean water access in the next 10 years. I didn't have a way of thinking, well, this is not going to work, I'm going to go back because I had a one-way ticket. I had to make it work. And they go, we can't give you a job in anything because you're a migrant. 36% of Australian startups are run by migrapreneurs. There's greatness in every single one of us to want to do more, to do better. The greatness is because of the people you want to make a difference for. From Catalyzer, this is Micropreneur Stories, a show about migrant entrepreneurs who have found success in Australia and the stories behind the startups they built. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Micropreneur Stories. I'm here with Brendan. Today, as you may notice, we're not on the Catalyzer couch today. We're here at the studio, which is a startup incubator located in the Sydney Startup Hub. So thank you very much to the studio. Startup incubator located on the level six of the Sydney Startup Hub for their support for this podcast. Today, we're joined by Anne-Marie Elias. Now, Anne-Marie is an Egyptian-born Italian-Australian whose core focus is to be a catalyst for change and through a collective effort, restructure the manner in which our social systems support those in need, having spent three three decades breaking down the cycle of social disadvantage. She's founded The Collective New South Wales, a networking group aimed at protecting the most vulnerable in our society through cross-sector and community collaboration. As a published writer and TEDx speaker, she preaches the gospel of disrupting the status quo and provides others the tools to do exactly the same. How are you going, Anne-Marie? Very well, thank you. How's your day been? It's been pretty busy as usual, but exciting. Um, Went to Macquarie Uni and met with uh, the head of their Masters in Social Innovation. So always good to um, have links back to my old university that I did my undergrad in. Well, fantastic. I mean, well, I think that's a great segue into, I think, what all the the audience are keen to know. I mean, could you give us a little bit about your background and Uh, how you started and... Well, I'm a reluctant entrepreneur because I didn't even know what that meant until five years ago, to be honest. I mean, my background is 30 years in policy. Mm. (laughs) So I've worked as a ministerial advisor for both sides of politics and I've worked for -for not-for-profits. I've worked for government departments, state and federal government agencies. So I've seen problems from all different kinds of angles, but I grew up... The, I mean, I was a migrant myself because my parents migrated. I was seven years old, came to Australia, uh, didn't speak a word of English, spoke four other languages, but lost all those languages oh, to be able to <laughs> grab just, English. I know that all too well. But then my mother sent me to the Military Academy of Italian Saturday School and then, <laughs> so I can still speak Italian fluently, thank you very much. Um, but basically, yeah, kind of was mostly influenced by my parents who... Um, my mum, who came here, my p- father had passed away, so, you know, she was here on her own, raising two kids, working in hospitals and factories, doing shift work. And then someone in the hospital that she worked at said, you're really bright, what are you doing? And she said, oh, actually, I was a teacher at the British Boys' School in Alexandria, but, you know, my qualifications aren't recognised in this country. So... This lady had said to my mum, well, I think you're too clever to be a cleaner, so why don't you apply for these internships at the Department of Immigration or jobs? And so mum got a job there. But 
just, you know, so I come from, that's my kind of background is I'm, I'm a migrant myself. I saw my mother struggle and then I saw that she went and worked in a government agency that she became of service to others. And the entrepreneur part, I should have known because in 1974, my mother did a pitch to Sydney Rotary about running a sessional service out of Hillsdale Shopping Centre for new migrants. And my mother speaks seven languages. So she proposed this and Rotary rang Hillsdale Shopping Centre. It was a new migrant settlement area and they gave her a caravan to put in the car park of the shopping centre. And for 10 years, her and my stepdad ran a sessional service helping migrants connect to jobs, understand letters and all of this, but it was volunteer. So I realise now that my mum did a pitch to Rotary in 1974 that built a public-private partnership, which lasted for 10 years, which meant that it kind of scaled. So it kind of is in my DNA and migrants, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm -hmm. So that is, I think, the root of all of and innovation is necessity. And I'm particularly passionate about people that have an idea that comes from a lived experience more than anything. And I am wearing the Refugee Talent T-shirt, which is about (laughs) unlocking refugee potential. So, sorry, very long answer to your question. Fascinating answer though. (laughs) But yeah, lots of things. So I reluctantly fell into this world of tech startup about um, five years ago when a woman called Nicole Williamson, Nikki Williamson, uh, maneuvered an invite to meet with me and I met with her and she was like, you you should come and have a look at this world. And I'm like, oh, I don't really get that world. And so I brought her into my world of government and she kept saying to me, you don't really belong there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know, I never really fit in. It's kind of weird. So I guess back then I was an intrapreneur, like always coming up with crazy ideas and always collaborative, always bringing in outside in, you know, external collaboration and collaborating across sectors. And that would just freak government departments out. So um, Nicole or Nikki gave me, you know, this opportunity to go to a hackathon and I just sort of felt completely inadequate because I can't code and I'm not a designer or anything cool like that, but I can take pictures and I can write like really cool stuff on Twitter. (laughs) And so I've got like a pretty major following on Twitter and LinkedIn because I documented the stories of entrepreneurs. So I guess that's kind of a bit of a roundabout way of saying you don't have to be a tech person or a you know, finance person to be a great entrepreneur. You just have to come from the lived experience. So understand the problem really, really well and know how to bring the talent in to help you build stuff. But it takes all different kinds of people to make an entrepreneur enterprise work. Mm. You know, all different talents. So I know you mentioned that you were a reluctant entrepreneur in the beginning. So what what advice would you give, you know, potential people? They're in a nine to five job, they're a migrant, thinking about signing up for the Catalyzer cohort. Just do it. (laughs) You know, I wasted so many years because I didn't know, like I only met Nicole or Nikki five years ago. So I didn't have access to that world. You know, it's a parallel universe to being a policy wonk and going to conferences about public service and you know, really boring stuff, quite (laughs) frankly. So 
you know, I, I didn't know that that world existed, so I wouldn't expose myself to that stuff. And what it did is it caused me to make a big decision, but kids don't do this unless you have good financial assets. And like I'll declare I'm now 53 next week. So I'm, you know, I was in my late 40s when I started to do this. And, and I had like a house that I sold and I had financial backing. But even then, I didn't want to dip into my savings. I wanted to carry myself mm. and I left public sector work with, with only a $150,000 contract, so don't ever do that. <laughs> like my rationale now with the benefit of hindsight is you should have three $50,000 contracts right. so that you can spare that out over 12 months while you test stuff and get new customers, but don't leave with just 50K. It doesn't work, I promise you. <laughs> it's very stressful. So, I mean, you mentioned that obviously migrants are very successful in startups. So there's some new statistics out. 36% of startups in Australia are run by migrants. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, what skills do these migrants have that are allowing Necessity. Them? <laughs> they have necessity mm. because they're often people that can't get a job. Like Narari, when, when we ran TechFugees, so I'm the co-founder of TechFugees with mm -hmm. Nikki and Annie Parker, um, and when we ran the first one in Liverpool, Narari had been in Australia for six months. He was an IT professor at the Syrian Uni, but he was going to NGOs and they were saying, cleaner security guard, that's the job, that's what we've got available. So he came to that hackathon and he told that story and said, like, I really want to contribute to what I'm good at, which is like, fine, I'm happy to be a cleaner or security guard while I get things sorted, but like I want to pay taxes on what I can earn, like which I know I can do. And so he partnered with a woman called Anna Robson, who had worked on Nauru, so understood the skill set of refugees. And they started out with something called Refugee Intern. And that was about just getting refugees the local experience, because they thought that was actually the major problem is refugees don't have the local experience. So as they tested and validated this with employers, employers said, why wouldn't I interview you, Narari? You're amazing. I love your background. And Narari said, oh, you don't understand. I'm a refugee and I have no local experience. And the employers said, neither do 457 visas. And boom, unpacked something that not even my mother could unpack 30, 40 years ago. Not even, not any of the millions of doctors and uh, engineers and nurses and overseas qualified people that we mm. have had migrate over, you know, decades and decades. And here's this new person who was able to solve the problem because he had tech skills, he had access to, uh, you know, understanding the problem inside out and validating that in fact employers didn't care at all about the local experience, they wanted talented people. And then they launched Refugee Talent which has now placed well over 300 refugees, skilled refugees in jobs. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so that's what is absolutely possible. And 38%, I'm not surprised. Um, I think if you look at, um, you know, it's, it's not a new thing, migrantpreneurship, because yeah. that's how a lot of migrants had to because they couldn't find work. Um, so they created their own jobs. They started corner shops. They started small businesses. They, you know, uh, I've actually got a presentation where I talk about that we're not the first migrant entrepreneurs. Like Carla Zampatti was a migrantpreneur. 
um, Belgiorno Nettis, who is, you know, a very well-known uh, Italian entrepreneur, mm. you know, back from the 1950s. Um, there's Pratt, you know, which is Vizi. There's uh, Servcorp, uh, who's a Lebanese Mafourage, Alfred Mafourage. So, you know, we stand on the shoulders of many, many giants who, you know, I've mentioned the ones that were supremely successful, but, mm. you know, with that and everything in between, because that's what we have to do sometimes. And I think it's interesting because with the casualization of work and automation and all those things, that trade is going to be even more important for everybody in the future, not just migrants. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see, I mean, one of the things, and honestly, credit to the TechFugees program and things like Catalyzer, which give people yeah. the opportunity to actually break out of that yeah. sort of, the, the, maybe the self-imposed box, but maybe the socially imposed box that they have. What I'm interested about is in terms of, you say necessity is what drives a lot of micropreneurs. I mean, having been in necessitatious circumstances <laughs> before, sometimes it's like looking down, up, up, up a mine shaft and there's no... Yeah, more. oh, absolutely. I mean, do you have any advice... Well, that's why programs like Catalyzer are really, really super important because it's run by people who have had that lived experience for people with that experience. And it's not as easy as just having an idea because there's a massive process and structure and a rapid prototyping that needs to take place for you to actually see whether you're actually finding a solution to fit a problem that actually doesn't exist or whether you're actually responding to a known problem. And the skills that you learn through Catalyzer and the mentors that you get. I mean, my God, Alan Jones, you know, the nice one. <laughs> the nice one, Alan Jones. Always have to clarify that. Always have to say that. He's actually had to put that on his Twitter. Um, uh, you know, I mean, they've got the most incredible, um, you know, uh, just incredible mentors that can support them and that have connections across the industry. And it's not just having a great idea, it's how do you execute it? How do you identify who the customers are? How do you test it? How do you scale it? You know, and how do you not scale it very quickly? Because the one thing I've learned is that, you know, you know, you can't scale things too quickly. You've got to just take take a breath, you know, take things slowly, like really, really work stuff and you know grow your customers slowly look after the ones that you've got make sure that you've got that right before you start to offer your serve to other people yeah, absolutely i mean i think i think following on from that is there anything you could say to the to the topic of patience because a lot of this is a long-term growth strategy and of a, <laughs> necessity stands in one corner and yes. patience is probably the thing that it's you <laughs> that know someone you through it. someone told me about 30 years ago, Franco De Chiera, he's a filmmaker, and I was a young person working at SBS, and Franco wasn't that much older than me. So he was a, a forbearer, entrepreneur, migrant entrepreneur. And I said to him, you know, what does it take to break into this really highly competitive film industry? And he said only two things, Amory: passion and persistence. And that, I'm getting goosebumps as I've said that because... With, you can have patience, but without passion and persistence, you are gone. Like, you need to know that you will be rejected. Like, you will be um, demoralised. You will be on your last dollar and thinking, what the hell am I doing? But it, all, it will always come down to how much do you believe in what you're doing? 
you know, think Steve Jobs. Like, I'm sure he, well, we know the story because he's had a million biographies written mm. now. But do you know what I mean? That took a lot of passion and persistence, which requires resilience more than patience. It's it's a step above patience, in, in my opinion. But those things are all qualities that you do need. And that's why, again, when you're in a secure space like Catalyzer, you're getting the mentors that can help you. You're getting a program that's structured, that's tried and tested. You're getting access to corporate partners, you know, and sponsors that are, are wanting you to succeed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how you get things done. 20, 30 years ago, people like my parents just did it anyway without the structure. And I actually love saying my mum never went to MIT. Mm. She knew nothing about design innovation or design thinking, and she knew even less about technology. But what she did know was what the problem of migrants were, and that was that nine to five was not a time that they could go and get assistance. Mm. So she did the caravan after hours in a shopping centre where they went to shop, right? <laughs> so it was, you know, I think still reflect on that day and go, you know, like they served thousands and thousands of people, you know, over a decade, you know, and that, that's, that's what it takes. And they didn't even get paid for it, you know. So, yeah. so sometimes you don't even get paid for it and that's what you've got to be prepared for. But, you know, kids don't do it if you have a family and all of that. Like I was lucky I was already in my late 40s. My kids were already like finished high school and things like that. So I didn't have to be as responsible as somebody that has, um, you know, a young family and needs mm -hmm. to, to make a living. So, you know, but also it's a labour of love. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not uncommon for people to be doing their day job and then spending night after night and weekends working on their concept and their idea. Yeah, I mean, but I think, like, credit to you, I think it's inspirational because I think when you think about an entrepreneur, you're thinking about the 21-year-old college dropout from Stanford. You, I mean, the examples like you show that it yeah. varies the oh. entire spectrum, like your mother before you and you, yeah. you yourself show that it varies the entire spectrum. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, and, and that's why I've been reluctant, right, because I didn't go to business school. I don't know anything about UX. I mean, I know about these things now, of course. You know, basically what I did is I was going to, go and do a PhD on social innovation because ultimately that's what I care about. How do we change the world with all this amazing technology and all these entrepreneurs? Um, and so that, that was my interest. And I went to Mick Lubinskis, who's Mr. Focus, co-founder of Mirror D and many other things. Um, and Mick's advice to me was why, just, just do it. Mm -hmm. So that is now the advice that I pass on to you that I've received the passion and persistence above all else is what you need and also Mick Lubinskis's point of view as well. You know, these things are really practical and important. Mm. So going back to that point, I guess, learning how to learn. So obviously you learnt a lot in a short uh, amount of time and I mean the migrants and refugees in these pre-accelerators, a lot of work to do on their project as you mentioned after 9 to 5 as well. Yep. I mean, what are some of the tips that you can give on how to learn how to learn? I don't know. I've always just had that inquisitive nature and I think that's actually what keeps me quite young yeah. is mm. I don't ever feel that I know everything. I feel that I know a lot. I mean, I've got like, you know, I started as a youth advocate at 16, so I pretty much have more than 40 years or no, that's not true, over 35 years of knowledge and experience. But 
I love learning new things. And so if you have that approach that learning things is so exciting and it does keep you young and it keeps your brain operating and it keeps you, you know, just, I think, interested in life. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the one thing I can tell you is going to hackathons, it's not, it's not walking into a room where everyone's Anglo. And I know that's going to be a controversial thing that I say, but, you know, I still get surprised that you go to things and set, certainly in government circles and not-for-profit circles where everybody is Anglo, mm. you know. So when you go to a hackathon and you see all these diverse faces and people, it's like, oh, you just feel like you're at home, yeah. you know. So my, my tip and advice is go out to hackathons. That's where you'll meet like-minded people. That's where you'll learn what the techniques are, what the tools and skills are. And, and that's where you can be as open as you like to learning new things. And my insider trading tip is that, you know, when you build a team in a hackathon, there's always like the developers and there's always the UX designers, but nobody really thinks about BDMs, business development managers or marketers. Because I can tell you, though, the design people and the developers are really good at building and making things look nice. They're not good at selling. Mm. So, you know, even if you've got a sales background, even if you've got a management background, you know, whatever, it, all these skills are actually really useful. Even finance, because someone needs to do the accounting to look at mm. what you need to scale. And I guess just on that point of team building, can you tell us any stories of any teams that you've worked with and how they've, I guess, built a well-balanced team and worked together well? Look, I think it's always a challenge, but I think I like the best teams that I've worked with are ones that are willing to pivot all the time, you know. And the hardest thing is to get the founder out of the way sometimes, right. you know. And I, I think I'm, I'm one of those people as well, so I'm not, like, saying that... Um, you know, it's something that other people do. It's something founder syndrome or something mm. like that, but you think you know best and you want sort of absolute control over things. But, you know, that that's something that, you know, a good founder and if you're really committed to the end result, you'll step aside to let the right people take charge because sometimes the founder is not the person that should be doing the pitch. Yep. Sometimes the founder is not the person that should be selling. So, you know... But the founder has a story that does need to be told and kind of weaved into the story of the idea. Wow. Well, speaking about being a founder, I know that you've been involved in a lot of different projects. Uh, one of them that I noticed was the Collective New South Wales. Uh, yes. Do you want to give us a bit of a background about what that is and how it's going? And Yeah, well, that was a movement in a way that I started with my boss in Fax, a guy called Eugene McGarrell. And it's Family and Community Services has public housing, foster kids, um, used to have ageing and disability as well, domestic violence. So it has all the highest disadvantage across the state. Mm. Um, so my concept was I had done this stakeholder engagement program because all these departments came into one and I realised that they had all these silos and then nobody outside was coming in. So everything that we were doing every time we set up a refuge, all the money came from government and was paid for by government. So I played this game with my boss or we played this game with the um, agency of saying, well, let's have a look and see if there is an appetite for the community to step in and build the social capital around these people. Because at the end of the day, we're not employing them. We're not getting them 
out there and learning new things or training for the skills of the future or whatever it is that need to get them out of public housing, yet we keep complaining that they constantly stay in public housing. Mm. So, you know, there you go, I was a bit of an entrepreneur, but I didn't see it as that. To me, it was community development and how do you just support people by um, not doing it in a siloed way because clearly whatever government and not-for-profits are doing is not enough. We're failing. Yeah. So I started running these events locally. So North Sydney, we attracted about 200 people, all the corporates, and everyone just saying, like, we want to help. And we started with the data. So we started with the fact that um, Northern Beaches, North Sydney had among the highest youth suicide rates, that they had massive issues with mental health and family crisis, domestic violence, all those kinds of things yet were never named in the statistics because the focus was on Western Sydney. So, you know, that's issues with reporting and whatever. So basically what we did is we brought these corporates together and said, okay, well, let's tell you what we're working on and see what you want to help with. So one of the things Annabelle Daniel from Women's Community Shelters was building a refuge in Hornsby and we got 40 winks to furnish the entire refuge. So the money saved from that meant that it could go to further things for the refuge or the women. But the idea was to link corporate to things that were going on in the community to build the social capital around disadvantage and hope to break that cycle of despair so that it wasn't just government trying to solve it, but the whole community was trying to actually improve people's lives. And it's still going in some areas. We've, we'd done it across most of the state and then, and then I left and then... Uh, some areas are still doing it in their own kind of ways, mm. but the idea is that no one agency can solve the problem. No one not-for-profit or even a group of not-for-profits and government. Corporate sector is really key to giving these people jobs and giving these people opportunities and mentorship. Interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about it in a broader spectrum, that what I'm interested in is looking at it from a top-down perspective, there's many different ways of actually intervening for social good. So you could have funding programs, you could have collaboration events. I mean, is there a reason why you chose collaboration events? Was that influenced because initially... Because of the, you know, caravan in Hillsdale Shopping Centre and Rotary. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't realise it. It all goes back to that. It. It goes back I didn't realise it at the time, but you know what I mean? It was ingrained in me that you bring people together mm. and... To me, Rotary was was private sector, uh, so was the shopping centre, and my parents were the community. And so for me, all I saw is that the same people trying to solve these problems was failing. And so I knew we had to try something different. And in a way, you know, what I proposed is to go back to the, <laughs> the old days of the way things were done, but this time now leveraging technology and leveraging a whole ecosystem of smart people. Fantastic. Very interesting. And I guess working with a lot of government agencies, are they starting to adopt some of the lean startup methodologies or are they... I think yeah they are. I think I think a lot of agencies across state and federal are using these methods, but as I say, the methods are meaningless. Mm. Right? Like we get so hung up on the tech or the design thinking and think that, oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna learn fast and I'm gonna do lean but it's meaningless unless you can show me how it's improving something. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? So I'm kind of a bit bored of the trend of using these methods. Mm. I'm more interested in, well, what is the outcome? Not the output, because the output will be a number of workshops and cool stuff, but what ultimately have we changed by using this methodology and was it the right methodology? Because, you know, we 
we still, I think, fail at bringing people into the equation. Mm -hmm. And we get really excited about these tools, but they're just tools. Mm. You know, what's important is how these tools can enable people to solve these problems. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Great, great answer. Yeah, that's comprehensive. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't have to apologise for answering the question beautifully. Um, I mean, in terms of further questions, I, I did have one. I mean, you, you told us that, you know, if you were to go back, I mean, one of the things you might have done is actually started oh. a bit earlier or alternatively had a bit more of a stable cash flow. Is there anything else that you look back in your past? I wish say, I did it earlier. I really, <laughs> really do because I think I would have had a lot more fun. But, mm. you know, having said that, Everything happens for a reason, and mm. I can only tell you that from hindsight. And I've missed out on getting jobs that I've literally cried on my <laughs> knees. Like, literally. Like, oh, on my knees I've cried over. But in retrospect, I've gone, if I stayed there, I wouldn't have had all these other. Mm. Like, I can see now, right? Yeah. Mm. So I think I wish I had the peace, the internal peace, which you don't have when you're 21. Yeah. Um to, well, I guess you can have it at 21 as well, right? Like, I still don't have it at 52 and three quarters. So, like, seriously, you can have it at any age. But that internal piece to just know that you're doing the right thing, you know what you're doing, to have faith and trust that everything that's happening to you is happening for a reason and for the right reason. Sometimes it's not obvious or evident at the time and, it, you know, you could feel completely shattered. But... Wasting energy on being shattered is, is the worst thing you can do. I wish I didn't waste so much energy crying over things mm. and being so distraught over things that happened in my life that were actually quite good in the long run mm. and put me on different tra trajectories. You know, so like I lost a lot of income coming into this tech startup <laughs> world. I really did. But, but, you know, at the same time, like I've been the happiest that I've ever been because I'm around really clever people and they all work with me because they want to make a difference because that's all I do is working out ways how to make a difference. So fast forward to now, and I'm now the lab director for an accelerator called Unboxed, which is funded by an organisation called New Horizons. Mm. And talk about lived experience. They've been around for 50 years and they were founded by a group of parents who had kids in mental institutions in the 1950s and 60s in Ride and they were really worried about those kids not having a functional life and contributing life. So they did a joint venture with BP in 1967. Wow. Like, can we Whoa. just soak that in? <laughs> right? In Ride, New South Wales Ride. Wow. Like, do you understand the implications <laughs> of this? That we probably had an organisation in our midst, in our community that started the social enterprise movement in 1967 with a JV with BP. And back then, right, maybe you, you, you're too young to remember, back then we had full service petrol stations, so people never left their car, right? Like you had your tyres changed, you had them washed, you had oh, them pumped, right, you yeah, had yeah, yeah. the change taken from you, the petrol put in, coffee brought to you, whatever, tissues, anything you wanted. And so there was a lot of people working at a petrol station to serve every single person. So they got their kids working in this petrol station, which gave them a full-time job. And the petrol station was still going, I think, until about 2000. Wow. Um, so New Horizons started like that and then did a packaging business and then started having group homes and 
So it's a disability aged care and mental health service provider that's been around 50 years. And working with the CEO, Judy Higgin, and the uh, chief of marketing there, Ryan Watson, we started talking several years ago about innovation and how a not-for-profit like them could leverage it, especially given their their DNA, their founders were entrepreneurs, social innovators. And so they then looked at ways of doing that and the only way we could come up with is creating this lab called Unboxed, which is trying to unbox the way NGOs source people to help them solve problems. So we're looking at startups around different themes, which we've just finished a call out on wellbeing and we've got three startups starting next week that are addressing different areas of wellbeing. And New Horizons is going to work with them for 12 weeks in an accelerator program, uh, look at giving them some customers to actually test and validate their concept. And then at the end of 12 weeks, both parties will have a think about whether they want to invest. So whether the startup wants the investment and how much and whether New Horizons wants to invest. So I call it like a plug-in. So the biggest Mm. failure that I've seen of startups or any business is not acquiring customers. And a lot of accelerators can't help people um, with customers. They can help them with methods and good, good business strategy and solid thinking and building teams and all of that. But the customer acquisition thing, I think, is the hardest. So I've talked to government about this for years, but they never really got it. So I went to a not-for-profit and they really got it. I had done some work with Disruptors Handbook, which is a corporate innovation firm, uh, you know, that helped us consult with the executive leadership team and the board to get them thinking about what they wanted for the future. And Mm. they know the future is digital. They know that their customers, like their current customer who's eight years old, um, called Sophie, who has a prosthetic, in 10 years' time, she's going to be printing whatever colour prosthetic she wants before yeah. she goes out. Wow. Um, you know, so, like, how can they be a part of that future? And, well, they can't doing their business as usual, but they can by working with startups. So, you know, this is a really exciting space for me. And, you know, I guess every single job that I've had has led me to this. Like, could I have done it without my policy background, without advising ministers' background and all of that? Probably not because I know a lot about how things work and how they don't. And, you know, being, you know, given the opportunity by New Horizons to set up this lab to see what happens, I think, you know, I think is a really great opportunity for people that come out of Catalyzer. You know, mm. I haven't, you know, I'm talking to Usman about it, but like how, do, how can we support people coming out of Catalyzer mm. to maybe pitch in the future to New Horizons to further their ideas as well? So, you know, that's the other thing that I love about this is that normally in ecosystems, labs and things are really competitive. I don't see this in our world. And maybe it's because both Usman and I come from migrant backgrounds because we, ha- we you know, we understand each other and I- I'll support him no matter where I am or um, do you know what I mean? But yeah, like we want to work together. So that sort of collaboration, I think, is... Um, is really, really special and it's really important. So go the migrant entrepreneurs that, <laughs> that operate on many different spheres, right? So don't, don't sort of dismiss because there will be people working in their jobs that are doing that work. So they're the migrant intrapreneurs. <laughs> <laughs>
So, yeah, <laughs> all new concepts, yeah. new terms for me anyway. And I guess these micropreneurs, so obviously you mentioned hindsight's a great thing to have when you're 21. I mean, we have a lot of young people in the cohort. Having a mentor is a good way, in a sense. <laughs> to uh, And you mentioned we've got some great mentors here at Catalyzer. So, I mean, the people listening at home, how can they approach a mentor in different areas of their life? Oh, my God. It, you know, people are so welcoming, right? Like, you know, I've mentored people that I've met on Twitter wow. and LinkedIn. So I think, you know, just be studious about who you want and, you know, and then just reach out to people. I mean, the worst that can happen is they'll say no, mm. but mm. it doesn't matter. You know, if you go back to my um, universal alignment speech, and you think about everything happens for a reason, if that mentor says, no, they're not your right mentor right. for where you need to be. Mm. And it might break your heart and you may cry on your knees over it like I have as well, <laughs> but they clearly weren't the right mentor for that time. And you're not gonna realize it until later. But yeah, like just, you know, actually that is the biggest piece of advice I can give you is get on Twitter, get on LinkedIn. Right. Like seriously, if you don't have a LinkedIn profile yet, do it because especially if you're prepared to, uh, you know, put yourself out there and do videos about what you're interested in and follow people, people follow you back. And even if they don't, you follow people, you learn new stuff, you make connections, you can reach out and ask if, you know, if you if that person can mentor you or whatever yep. and you'll you'll be really pleasantly surprised how many people say yes and twitter mm. especially like i met gavin heaton of disruptors handbook on twitter wow. you know I'm, i met nicole on facebook you know through mutual friends because we wanted to meet each other mm. um you know she met annie um through the tech startup scene but i bet it was through twitter so you know like you meet, you make really powerful connections with people through social media. Mm. Yeah, throw the ball. Yeah. Anne Marie, Shia LaBeouf, and Nike agree. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. And that's Mick Levinskis for you, Mr. Focus. There we go. Um, I've got a fun one just to round out. Thank you very much for your time today, but I've got a fun one just to round us out. Um, you're, on a desert, you're on a desert island. Uh -huh. There's a coconut tree, and you're just going to eat coconuts until. The, the never-ending ship comes, okay? Yeah. What's the one item that you take? On My your phone. Your <laughs> is phone? that awful? <laughs> your phone. <laughs> that is such a stupid well, answer. It. But it's like, like my phone. Yeah, LinkedIn should just throw the ball, make sure you get mentored. Oh, my God. While you're no, on the that is such island. a bad, poor, poor answer. I'm not sure about this imaginary island and its reception, so you might... <laughs> yeah, that's right. You might Jesus. have to play Candy Crush until, uh, <laughs> no, until the No, no, I was home. just thinking, like, that way I can message, like, what's happening? <laughs> can someone come get me? Yeah. I need food, Uber Eats, Uber <laughs> Island Eats, <laughs> Uber Imaginary Eats. There we go. You need to pitch that the shipping the shipping straight down <laughs> to the islands for rich people what about yeah. uh, one book that you could take to this mm. desert island one book that's that's really really good i actually um it's i, I don't want to say it's the best book i've ever read but it's the most recent and i really really enjoyed it is satya nadella's refresh hit refresh i think um learning a bit about satya who's the ceo of Microsoft and seeing where he's taken the company to not sort of sell stuff but more build communities and enable mm. communities is really quite powerful and you know I'm I was drawn to him for that reason but but also because I like so many people that work at Microsoft mm. like I'm 
totally in awe of the people that work at Microsoft and the stuff that they're doing. So, um, you know, I think learning about people that are hugely successful is always something that I enjoy and gives me inspiration. But if I was on an island by myself, I would have to say something like Conversations with God or The Celestine Prophecy. Mm. So more spiritual mm. books that I have read in my youth, actually, mm -hmm. that I should probably read again. Wow. Fantastic. And let's round it out with one more fun one, just because I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Music. One record. One record. <laughs> Can't be an album. We won't bore you with the album, but one record. Oh, my God. I've got so many. I like funky music <laughs> and hip-hop type music. Right. Um, but I might go a classic. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Won't you take me to Funky Town? Won't you take me to <laughs> Funky Town? You so, listen to that on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would. Because, you know, so, so that's a bit of my strategy is to use that kind of music to, like, to get you moving, mm. to move you up a beat. With you your know? phone next to you, you can just play that as your Boom. alarm and then you're up. Let's and go. Let's go. My initial time. one was, who let the dogs out? <laughs> <laughs> So just energising, anything energising. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Mary, thanks so much for coming on Migrantpreneur Stories. And for everyone listening at home, everything that Emery mentioned will be in the show notes below. And we hope that you subscribe to Migrantpreneur Stories to keep hearing more passionate and insightful episodes in the weeks to come. And you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Emery, just wanted to thank you one more time for coming on the podcast. Thank you so, so much. It was wonderful to meet you again and, and thank you for the opportunity. Right, thanks for coming. Thank you. Hey, team. Thanks for tuning in to that podcast. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Catalyzer. Catalyzer is an award-winning pre-accelerated program for refugees and migrants who wish to start up their own startup. If you're interested in applying for the Catalyzer program, you can head to the website catalyzer.com.au, find out a bit more about what we do. Thanks so much for tuning in.